Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. On today's show, we have Scott Horton. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute, as well as the editorial director for Antiwar.com and the host of the Scott Horton Show, a podcast I 100% listen to all the time, and I think you guys should too. Uh, but yeah, Scott has an upcoming debate against Bill Crystal um, in in May, and uh, we spoke about his upcoming debate, and then we segued off into uh, topics really ranging from Afghanistan to the MIC to Syria to Turkey. We covered a lot of topics. It was a great episode. Uh, Scott is the man, and uh, I think you guys are going to really love this episode. When I first heard of Antiwar.com, and this was years ago when I was like, when I first heard about it, I went on it for one second and I was like, what type of communist bullshit is this? And then I found out later, I think it was um, one of my friends who was more conservative recommended it to me, and I'm like, oh, these guys aren't commies. This guy, Justin Raimondo, is, likes Pat Buchanan. Like, what, <laughs> what is this? And I was blown away the fact that there was a bunch of anti-war libertarian or a bunch of anti-war people who weren't communists. leftist progressive communists. <laughs> and at That's that time, exactly what tenure. happened to me when I found antiwar.com, only it only took me one minute to adjust because my friend that showed it to me, I said, what is that, some kind of socialist thing? And she goes, no, check it out. And the first thing she did was start clicking around, show me. Ramondo is a Pat Buchananite, and look here, they run articles by Ron Paul. And I'm like, hey, I love these guys. Are you kidding me? And they own the URL antiwar.com? No way. And that was in 99. So I just got lucky that my friend had already done the research before she showed it to me. Because I would have turned it off, too. I was like, yeah, 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 I heard some commies complain. That don't impress me, you know? I'm convinced Justin Ramondo is is the greatest... Uh, muckracker of the 21st century um, just a phenomenal writer uh, when I discovered him you know he I don't want to say he changed me because I was already in the path of change but he kind of articulated on in writing pretty much everything I was thinking and then I went to his archives back to like when he was writing about the Iraq war and I was like this guy got everything right like everything he wrote about he got right Um, Yeah, no, I'm really glad to hear you say that because, listen, my experience with all this was exactly like yours, only I didn't have to go back. It was all in real time. And, you know, I didn't really have the Internet between 99 and, say, 02. But um, I think in the beginning of 02, right around spring of 02 or something, is when I finally got the Internet again. And so then I saw the entire march into Iraq War II in super slow motion, train wreck style. And reading Ramondo, and it was, man, it was a mystery. It was an enigma wrapped in a what the hell is going on here? Where, How does this guy know this stuff? And I knew a lot about the Republicans, but I did not know about the neocons. There's nobody, 
if you go back now and look carefully, you can find it. But there was certainly no one in 2002 saying, look, there's a particular sect of Republican who are former communists, who are very Zionist, who have for a very long time had this project to go back to Iraq, and now is their chance to get their project done that they've been pushing long before they were trying to connect Saddam to Osama bin Laden. So, um, but Justin was really instrumental in bringing that narrative to the broader audience, that this is not an Exxon war. They're on board, but this is not what they're for. I mean, and, and what the war is about. And especially when I hear you say you went back and reread all the old archives from back then, actually daydream that people will do that that they'll take the time to just stop and say i'm spending this saturday reading old romandos and what do they take five minutes each they're all thousand words each you know go through plow through those things and just start after september 11th you know and i think it's february 2002 he writes our hijacked foreign policy neocons take washington baghdad is next man it's all right there man and, and there's plenty before that. The myth of the Saddam bomb. That's from 99 or 2000. Anyway, there's a million of them. And, and that's what you should do. It's exactly what you did. Is sit and just read them and read them and read them. And catch up. And he absolutely was the most important writer of the Bush years. No question about it. And what I really loved about it is that he opened up this new world, like the bizarro world. You know, when, uh, you know, the bizarro world is when... I guess when when uh, that plane hit, a dimensional warp happened, and then this became the Bizarro World. And- I always hated that Bizarro World thing because I used to say that on the radio in 98 and 99 here in Austin about the Bill Clinton years. And I had a particular rant about Janet Reno, whatever she was claiming about protecting people's rights. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And the sun is red, and Superman's a bad guy, and I believe the rest of this stuff, too. And, you know, running through the thing. And then I, when I started working with Antiwar.com and started reading Antiwar.com, I was like, oh, man, this guy's already got his own bizarro world thing that he's pushing here. And he never did say the bit about the sun being red and Superman a bad guy. But um, he, he did a lot better with that theme than I ever did, I admit. And, and they're great pieces. And, I mean, the very first one, Bizarro World, but then there's like 30 of them along those same lines, too. So Our I'll, bizarro this and our bizarro that, you know. So I, I want to talk to you about how did this debate start? Like, I'm on I'm on antiwar.com right now. Banner ad says anti-war smackdown. Scott Horton and William Crystal. And for those oh, of you that don't... On, see, I have all these ad blockers, so I don't ever see that stuff. That's on antiwar.com's front page right now. That's on antiwar.com's front page. Banner ad. Scott Horton and anti <laughs> oh, no. hashtag antiwar smackdown with William Crystal. Right there, and curse my ad blockers. I did not know that, but okay. And it's being, it's like, um, for me, this is kind of like WrestleMania right now. <laughs> this is this is WrestleMania for me. Like, um, we get one of the leading anti-war voices versus, you know, the key neocon. Like, besides Richard Pearl and and uh, Paul Wolfowitz, I mean, I don't know. Or, or Robert uh, Robert Kagan, like who else is up there in, in the neocon hierarchy? Who's higher than William Crystal at this point? I mean, I think this is where I got to start asking you guys questions. I mean, first of all, it's Gene Epstein wanted this to happen. He tried to arrange an interview with um, what Ben Shapiro, who didn't respond, and then he asked Bill Crystal, and Crystal said yes, and you know, 
I'm I'm uh, you know very flattered that Epstein compared me to Noam Chomsky in a positive way in terms of uh, the meticulous research of the details and that kind of thing. And so I think he wants to see me fight somebody. So he asked me if I'd do this, you know, take on Crystal, and and uh, I said sure. And so then he announced it like eight months ahead of time, which made a huge deal about it. And means it's been bothering me and on my mind this whole time. I try to just put it off and not think about it. I'm not going to write what I'm going to really say until the last minute here, of course, you know. But um, I've been kind of asking different people about, uh, you know, what they think about it. And I really would be interested to hear what you guys say about, um, you know, exactly sort of how I should handle it. So I already have my arguments pretty solid. I'm going to attack the neocon from the neocon and explain why he failed to accomplish his goals kind of thing or at least why american interventionism has made things worse not better whatever it is on and the different interventions on the the, the particular regime changes and that kind of thing but i guess what's the open question is how bad do i completely murdelate this guy versus you know we're up there in suits and ties acting like gentlemen at a debate or whatever so i already have to dial it back some but the question is how much and i know the people are there because they want to see me completely murdelate the guy but actually that can really backfire right like not to criticize dave at all he's my very good friend it's not a criticism but it's just you know my impression of when he took on uh, nick sarwak where i'm 1000 percent on dave's side and zero percent on sarwak's side but i still thought dave actually lost quite a few points by bullying him too much and that it made it look like the bad guy was the, you know, defender and the good guy is actually the aggressor. And so Bill Crystal, of course, always plays that character with of the big smile and very aloof and very, you know, on the surface, very friendly and all this kind of thing. So I don't want the warmonger to be the nice guy and have the anti-war guy be the mean bully who tries to tries and fails to make him renounce it all or whatever. That's not going to be a good scene. So. Really, I kind of need to hold back and just state my case and just let it stand at that and not make it really an attack on him at all, or else I don't know what. But then people are telling me, man, you better barbecue the crap out of him, Horton, or else, man, I'm going to, you know. And so, you know, I don't know if, I'm, if I should really give the people what they want there or what. I mean, he certainly deserves it, but I'm just not sure if that's the right circumstances for me to do it, you know. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like, I don't think it should be like a criminal indictment of of William Crystal, um, though you know there there probably should be one. Um, but this guy is not like he's held high. He he's not held in high esteem across most of the generally informed public. Like most yeah. Republicans have abandoned Bill Crystal and the neoconservatives. Like at this point in, the, in time, neocon is a, is like almost a slur. Like, no one wants to be called a neocon. If you call, like, you know, one of these mainstream Republicans now a neocon, they'll be like, no, we're not neocons. The neocons were a very specific movement in the early 2000s. I mean, they won't even go that far. But I, I think just, I mean, the guy agreed to do it at the end of the day. You know, he didn't have to. Um, I'm sure, do you think he's aware that he's going into, I mean, he has to be aware that he's going into a Well, here's what I really think happened, is that he probably assumed that he was going to be arguing with the other Scott Horton, who is <laughs> good on almost everything except Russia, but, um, 
is a wonderful person and is a very decent gentleman, a professor at Columbia and a lawyer for, you know, formerly at a very powerful law firm in New York. And so this is the kind of guy I think he thought he could argue with. And then I think once Epstein announced it and he logged into his Twitter mentions and people were telling him, oh, you're a dead man and all this stuff. People were saying the most terrible things, taunting him on Twitter. And so he must have figured out that, wait a minute, other Scott Horton doesn't have a posse like this. What the hell is going on here, you know? So I think he probably realized, I have to assume, he thought I was the other Scott Horton, and now he is in a fight. But anyway, I don't know. Well, the thing with the Ben Shapiro thing, because I, I I saw like the you know the the Twitter reaction, or at least the social media reaction when when uh, I think Gene Epstein was was challenging Ben Shapiro to debate you, and then everyone kind of jumped on board and was like, "Oh, we got to set this up. Scott's gonna destroy Ben. Scott's gonna destroy Ben." And they kind of set it up to where it's just gonna be a beatdown of Ben Shapiro, and of course he's not gonna respond to that. You know, it's yeah, I think that and and. You know, uh, that was sort of an accident. I mean, I, I think Gene didn't mean for it to come out that way, but it sort of did. And it's the nature of Twitter, too, where, you know, everybody's trying to think of a meaner way to say the same thing, <laughs> you know. Look, I think you need to just keep it about neocons and not about Will Crystal. you know. if you Well, I mean, the question is, regime change is key to American foreign policy. Right. That's He's crazy. It, I'm against it. <laughs> That's I mean, so we just keep it to that. But yeah, the you thing just keep is, it there, and then he'll make a fool of himself himself. I mean, I, I don't know if you watched the last debate last night uh, for the uh, for the Democrats just the other night, and I know, did watch a little bit of it. It was it was crazy, and uh, I think part of it was because Bloomberg came on the scene. And he's just such a soft target, and everybody went in his throat. So like going yeah, that that's approach, what I'm trying to say. I don't know. want to come across like Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean she flamed him good, and everything she said was like correct it's just you want you, yeah, you might want to dial it back that bit, head yeah. of hers with that voice it's <laughs> just ridiculous yeah she's a, such a caricature you yeah. know yeah definitely um but yeah just um, keep it about the yeah, topic anyway so mm -hmm. that's my real that's my only concern is you know the social psychology of the whole situation and how it looks on youtube later and whether i do the right amount of filleting but not too much and what have you because when it comes to the facts, I mean, I have no idea what he's even going to try to argue other than glittering generalities about modernity and, you know, some sort of little F freedom, whatever that means. Freedom. Western civilization will probably pop up. I don't, I don't know. Does he... Just prepare a couple, like, one-line zingers, you know, that, that'll, like, shut down some of those, like, really broad, you know, generic uh, lines that he's talking points, basically, that he's going to spout. Um, well, see, I don't want to do that because I'm never funny if it's a joke I've told twice. You know, I'm, if I'm going <laughs> to be funny enough, at all, it's got to be off the cuff. You got to write some new material, man. But <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't write. It. I mean, like I'm saying, if it, the only time I'm ever funny is, uh, you know, just kind of off the top of my head, and even then, not usually. But we got to lead from ahead. Oh, it's it's well, you know, it's funny. He's arguing for the positive, so if, when you argue. He, he's going first, right? Like, that's the way that... Right. And So, I, I mean, with that crowd, like, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're going to win the debate with, with the crowd. You're, 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 you have such massive home field advantage. Um, but 
just I'm curious what he's going to say. Like I'm just stunned how people still argue the or defend those neoconservative talking points that were relevant right after September 11th. I, I understand psychology right after the U.S. was attacked. But now I'm just like, how do you look? How do you examine this situation and still think that regime change is a positive thing in American foreign policy? Well, you know, I mean, the art, the argument basically it is it comes down to generalities. You get too specific and the whole thing starts falling apart. But I mean, and in fact, the neocons have talked about with a straight face and they really do mean it that America, the, the essentially the uh, Pax Americana over the world since World War Two has kept the peace since World War Two. And then. Korea and Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and all the different coups and all the different regime changes and all the different civil wars that they've caused and the invasions of Iraq and all of these things, they just don't count. They just aren't even on the list. That's just proxy wars in the global south. That's just little stuff. By kept the peace, they mean that Britain and Germany and Russia haven't fought, which you know what? That's pretty good. You know, I don't know that America gets all the credit for that. It could have been a lot of different ways than the way it was. But they talk as though, hey, a few million Koreans, Vietnamese, Iraqis, Indonesians, and Bangladeshis, and all these people, they just don't count. It just doesn't matter what's happened to them. That's all just collateral damage in American, as Bill Crystal and his buddy Robert Kagan put it back uh, 25 years ago now, it's our benevolent global hegemony. That if it wasn't for America dominating, for example, Europe, all those major powers would be competing for each other, with each other. And instead, we're so powerful, they don't bother. Germany doesn't rearm because we occupy their country, but in a friendly way. And, you know, as welcome guests and as a war guarantee that they don't need to rearm because we'll keep their enemies away. And so, it, it, you know, if you look at from all of this from their point of view, which includes excluding all the contrary evidence, then America is Superman. America is just does nothing except save kittens from trees all day long. We smash the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese, who are essentially fascists in their own way, and then we rebuilt them and made them our friends instead of dominating them and exploiting them and gang-raping all their women and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. See how nice we are compared to them. And we made, we're so nice, we made them nice. And wherever we have alliances, why, that's our military and nuclear umbrella that we use to protect our friends and guarantee free trade on the open seas. And just the dead Iraqis just don't count. Forget that. Like Bill Crystal's, what, two and a half hour interview with Dick Cheney. I know. Let's sit down and we'll do a two and a half hour interview. It's over there, BillCrystal.com or whatever it is. And they don't even talk about Iraq War II. They talk about every facet of Dick Cheney's entire career. And then they entirely just skip Iraq War II. And they're like, okay, so that was great. Good to see you. And then that's it. 
Doesn't count. Doesn't matter. As far as they're concerned, meh. Mulligan. Not even that. Not even worth mentioning. And so that's their case. That's their case. Wherever American power goes, freedom follows. And all of the contrary evidence excluded. And that's it. And so that's how I'm going to win the argument because I already know what his argument is. And I already know that that's not good enough. As you just said, after 20 years of seeing the results, come on. So that's my argument. Come on. Really? <laughs> no. It ain't right. It's sort of like the the um, the Randy Weaver trial. They didn't even put on a defense. They just cross-examined the prosecution's witnesses and then rested. <laughs> that's all we need, Your Honor. We're done here. You know? It's just not true. So it was funny because I was watching the movie War Machine for the first time, and I was watching it with some of my friends. And um, there's a lot of my friends are are uh, pretty conservative. We were there was no way we were going to get through that movie without getting into a debate or an argument. So halfway through the film, we start arguing. I'm sorry, about, what film? Uh, War Machine with Brad Pitt. Oh yeah, yeah. Go the, ahead. The McChrystal. The, the McChrystal. Well, well, it's not McChrystal in the movie, but it's clearly based off McChrystal. Um, we start arguing about, um, you know, re, you know the, the actions in Afghanistan. And, you know, my friend who, who's listening to this show most likely because he is my good friend who listens, um, was like, listen, everything that you just said is right and true, but we still need to do this. We still can't do nothing and we can't leave now because all entire countries are going to go in chaos. And it's just that that's how that's how it ends. I'm like, we like I, I I'm trying to reach people like that. Or I'm trying to convince people that no, we don't need to do this. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if you're asking me what's a good approach to him, I mean well, when you said that, I'm picturing a sandcastle built right at the shore where the tide's coming in. <laughs> Staying around is not going to prevent the tide from washing that thing away. And look, if it took them 20 years to build this thing and it cannot stand without us propping it up, then we built the wrong thing. We had bad engineers and architects and the thing that they designed is unable to stand on its own. So why would we continue to prop that up when clearly we'd be having the same conversation in 10 years or 20 years? They built the wrong thing. The thing that they built doesn't work, cannot last. And when he says, listen, you're right about all the stuff. Hey, that includes the fact that the Afghan National Army is a ridiculous, pathetic joke. And that, hey, if it was able to do its job, it would be what? To enforce a totalitarian martial law on the whole society? It's a military that's made for fighting its own people. But it can't even do that. I mean, the whole thing on the face of it is a lost cause. The fact that uh, if we leave, it'll all fall down goes to show that what we've done was the wrong thing. I mean, simple as that. If that was the truth. And how could it have been any other way? I mean, what did you think was going to happen? If you send a squad of rangers to Afghanistan... They're going to ask one question, which is, who do I kill? Where's the enemy? And this is in the Afghan war logs. Where's the enemy? We don't know. Well, who, you've been, who have you guys been fighting this whole time? We don't know. 
Well, what should we do now that we're replacing you? Good luck. Figure it out. <laughs> and then somebody shows up and goes, oh, I know where the enemy is. He's right over that hill, living on some property that I would like. <laughs> and then we've been fighting a war like that for 20 years over there. Come on. I mean, I definitely hear that. Um, it, it doesn't make sense from from like a modus operandi, you know, like what, what yeah. as you point out, what, what are we doing? However, I oh, think I know one thing I'll tell you. Go ahead. Um, sorry, but um, no, cool. go for it. <laughs> uh, the great Andrew Basevich, Colonel Basevich, he went and was allowed to be the dissenting voice at one of these war party conferences in D.C. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess it would have been during the Afghan surge. And he said, listen, we have a country where uh, we have narco terrorists everywhere ruling the place, killing people, total lawlessness and oppression, and it's destroying the economy. And all of this. Um, and so we got to do something about it. We were going to say we should send 90,000 troops, 100,000 troops, maybe get our NATO allies to join us. And we'll go in there and we'll build them a new army. And we'll build them a new country. We're going to fix everything. And everybody's kind of nodding along. Okay, wow, Basevich is getting on board for counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, right? And he goes, yeah, in Mexico. That's what we should do, right, everybody? We should take the U.S. Army. We should put it in Mexico <laughs> where we don't speak the language. Even though probably a third well, or more of our do. army is Hispanic, <laughs> yeah. they still don't speak Spanish. They're Americans. They're Americans are unilingual. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and where they would have no legitimacy whatsoever to remake Mexican society, like Woodrow Wilson said, to teach them to elect good men. To what? Abolish the cocaine and marijuana and methamphetamine trades? And transportation distribution networks through Mexico? Is that what our army would do? Does anybody in this room think that that's what we should do with the U.S. Army and Marine Corps? Send them to Mexico to solve their problems? And the whole room is silent. Because they're completely called out. Oh, yeah, no, but this makes perfect sense. Let's do this in Afghanistan. Yeah, right. It's just a make-work project for a bunch of scum who don't want to have to get jobs so instead, they go, oh, yeah, no, they sell this fad of counterinsurgency. We're going we're gonna to trick the Pashtuns into going to war against themselves on our behalf. It's going to be great. And here we are 10 years later. All they did was kill an extra, say, 50 to 75 to 100,000 people and accomplish nothing. Nothing. They might as well have gone to Mexico and done the same thing there. Well, I think that one of the big issues is that most Americans, I would imagine, I don't want to know what the percentage of Americans that think that Afghans are, are, are Arabs. And I don't want to know the percentage of Americans that think that Afghanistan is a big old desert like Iraq. Like, I think a big part of it is that people don't even have a basic clue that there's multiple ethnic groups and there's many different tribal loyalties throughout that country. And as you so frequently point out, that the country is, it looks like Colorado. Right. And it's the size of Texas and does have deserts like California and and Arizona as well. Um, And and look, not only that, it's landlocked. And not only is it landlocked, but it's landlocked behind a massive mountain range. So if you look at the map, the entire south is blocked by Pakistan. And the only way around there from the port of Karachi 
if you're importing oil to our guys fighting there, uh, gasoline for our tanks or what have you, they're going to go all the way up the highway in Pakistan, all the way up to the port of Karachi, I mean, through uh, the Khyber Pass and into Afghanistan to resupply the guys and paying the Taliban hundreds of millions of dollars of protection money all along to do it, which they then turn around and spend on weapons that are sold to them by the Afghan army that we're building and arming. So they're getting, you know, fighting the Taliban who are fighting with American dollars and American weapons against them. So what's going on right now with the election right now? Because it seems like a real, um, it seems like a real shit show. Um, like, I guess I know this is a big task, but like what's going on to, with with the Afghan elections right now and what's sure. you know, what what has what has led to their this this uh this quagmire that they're now facing politically? Like, I okay, shouldn't say so, now facing that th- they have been facing for many years. Yeah. Well, so this was the, the third major presidential election that they've had. Uh, the first one was in 2004 or maybe this is the fourth one now. Let me think. Uh, the first one was in 04 was Karzai. Then they did another one in 09, and then another one in 14, and then this one. So, yeah, this is the fourth major election. They've all been complete disasters. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Um, in 2004, it was uh, Khalil Zad had installed, as all made Khalil Zad the neocon, had installed uh, Hamid Karzai as the puppet dictator there. And there were plenty of reports about how they had just stuffed all the ballots. And in the BBC, they were there was a report that they were threatening people that you vote Karzai or we'll burn your house down and all this kind of stuff in order to gangsterize people into reelecting him. And then in 2009, um, Obama and those guys wanted to throw him overboard and they tried to rig the election for either Ghani or Abdullah Abdullah. And I think they had changed their mind, first one, then the other, and it didn't work out because Karzai ended up stealing the election better than they did. There was no real democratic election taking place. It was just who can steal it, essentially. And then um, he finally stepped down, and they held a new election in 2014. And by the way, 
in all of these cases, out in the countryside, which is mostly, you know, Taliban territory and in the south and in the east where the Pashtuns are dominant, the elections never even held out there. You know, it's basically held by the members of the Northern Alliance and and the few, you know, other factions that are included. But as far as, you know, the vast dispersed population around the country, they don't really participate in this whatsoever. Um, then so Karzai steps down in 2014. They hold the election and Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah, Ashraf Ghani is his name, and uh, his competitor, Abdullah Abdullah, uh, are, you know, both claim to be the winner and refuse to concede. And in fact, um, I'm fairly certain it was Abdullah that tried to murder Ghani, although it could have been the other way around. One of them tried to bomb the other one, but it didn't work. And then John Kerry came in and created this whole new post-constitutional structure where, oh, yeah, your whole constitution thing, forget that anyway, we're going to make up this new ad hoc thing. We're now, Ghani, you're the president, and Abdullah, Abdullah, you're the CEO of the country. And Ghani, you should kind of treat him like a co-president and give him respect and power, which, of course, Ghani never did, right? Which brings us to the election of 2019, which was the exact same farce replayed again. And I think the night of the election, they both declared victory, as though anyone knew, as though it was a fair ballot in the first place, um, and as though it had been counted in any way. So now they finally announced the final results, and guess what? The incumbent won. And the challenger, Abdullah Abdullah, the current so-called CEO, is saying, no, it's a coup, because I really won, and so for you to refuse to give it to me is a coup. And so let's fight. And so never mind the Taliban. This is the Afghan government. This is the coalition government that we've built that we're trying to supposedly prop up and protect from the Taliban. And that's how well they got their act together. And so, um, you know, there's a quote in my book that um, I got from it's uh, C.J. Chivers or Chivers Chivers, I guess, from The New York Times. I'm pretty sure he's a former Marine and an arms specialist type and. Some of his reporting is good, but he's a little myopic sometimes. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent. Um, and he quotes this old man saying, listen, I'll tell you what. As soon as America goes, whether it's sooner or later, Mohammed Atta, and that's not the lead hijacker. This is an Afghan warlord, a different Mohammed Atta. There's another he's Mohammed Atta. Mohammed Atta is going to get whichever province. I'm sorry, I forget the name of it up in the north there. Maybe Mazari Sharif. And then he says... You know, uh, Ghani and his faction are going to take over this province, and Abdul and his faction are going to take over this province, and the Karzais will rule in the Papalzai tribal zone down there um, near Kandahar, and um, the Hazaras will take Ghazni province, and the uh, whoever, I forgot, he, I think he names a warlord, will run off with uh, Herat in the west, and then... And he's and he's just going down the list. He's just rallying them off about how Afghanistan is going to split into 10. And I'll tell you who's going to be the local warlord of each of the different areas. And then at the end, he says, and if this doesn't happen, you can burn my bones when I die, which was a great little turn of phrase for, you know, I promise you, I thought. And uh, I think that that's right. I mean, there's there's really no nation state here. And if and if any 
one force could unify the country under a single state. I don't know why anyone would think that that should be the supreme goal of any faction there to try to take more power than anybody wants to uh, give to them. But if that was to happen, it would have to be a ground up solution where enough and meaning a real majority of all the different factions voices from all around the country really had a say in compromising and coming up with a new way of doing things but that just hasn't been what's happened under america's occupation there that would be a whole new day that has a chance to begin once we're gone and by the way i'm not promising anything positive at all for all i know the taliban will march straight on kabul and kill anybody who stands in their way they're bastards the taliban um this is no brief for them however i don't think they would have the backing of pakistan to do that and the saudis it would be up to america to lean on the saudis and the pakistanis that we don't want to see that and and it's not 96 anymore see bill clinton he backed the saudi and pakistani policy to support the taliban when they took kabul last time in the mid-1990s. And without that support, that might not have happened. Maybe they would have, you know, settled for less. Um, but the Clinton administration wanted to see them conquer the entire country so that they could, with that monopoly, uh, secure the Unical pipeline they wanted to build back then from Tajikistan down to the port of Karachi, which is a pipe dream anyway. But anyway, pipe um, dream. <laughs> so without that, maybe they can compromise. I think there really is hope for compromise, but I'm certainly not promising it. But I'm saying even if the country does fall apart, even if, you know, the market for all the different um, power factions is overdue for a major correction, that's nothing we can create a soft landing for at this point. Our responsibility is to stop propping them up. And let these people work out their own differences themselves. Does the Taliban even want Kabul? Like they're warlords. They're 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 warriors. Like I don't do they know. do they want to run a government in Kabul? Who said anything about a government? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I mean, possibly they ruled it before. See, when they came in in mid ninety in the mid nineties, they were welcome. And you know, there are Pashtuns in. And it's not all Pashtun this and Hazara that. I mean, there are, you know, this is humanity we're talking about. It's complicated, but it is a major facet of it. Um, it's not a Pashtun city. I mean, I think there are some population there, but it's overall not a Pashtun city. And yet the Taliban, as right-wing religious authorities coming in, were seen as bringing law and order to the worst kind of anarchy, you know, the bad kind that people imagine arson fires everywhere and screaming and dying and suffering people from a terrible civil war and the and the abject criminality of Masood and his warlords. And so when the Taliban came in and kicked all their asses out, they were welcome at first. But, of course, they're pretty authoritarian guys and started lording it over everybody else way too hard. And, yes, I think they relished the power of being a state that they— they had a program for statehood for sure there, and um, they were almost done winning their civil war at the time that America intervened on the other side's behalf back in 2001. Um, but whether they would be intent on taking the capital city now, I don't know. I mean, I have to tell you, there are a lot fewer uh, journalists to interview about this these days uh, because there's not too many going there. and I ain't going. But 
you know, I kind of had this idea. If you take a look at the maps as they stand of where is the Taliban dominated territory, it's essentially the Pashtun regions and plus a little some, you know. So my idea is how about that for a peace deal is we'll just call this the state of Pashtunistan and you guys will have a lot of autonomy, but we'll still all be Afghans together. That way we don't have to fight over a hard international border and where the line should be, which is a whole new war. But how about just let's call time out right here, right? The, the American backed coalition rules almost entirely the north of the country and Ghazni province and where the, where the uh, Shia live, the Hazaras, and, and I guess mostly out west, although maybe, maybe out west has fallen more and more to the Taliban lately, but, you know, something like that. I think, but then, you know, I talked with an Afghan journalist not too long ago who was like, forget that. Everybody's way too mixed up for all that. The only question is negotiating their entry into the government. How can we get them to accept to just be another political party and share power through the institutions of the Kabul regime as it is now? And how can they be integrated and worked with? And I mean, hey, if there's a will, there's a way. They brought in um, Gubaldin Hekmachar and the Hizbi Islami group, and they let like 20,000 of his guys out of jail. Or, or he brought 20,000 with him, and they let a few thousand of his guys out of jail at least. And then... You know, in my book, I even have a little subchapter. Hey, is this a Trojan horse? I mean, is this guy real danger that they brought him in from the cold? But the problem with that is they brought him in from the cold. He's adjacent to them. He could maybe walk right in there or something really bad could happen. Um, and I asked this Afghan journalist about that recently. And uh, and he was like, no way. He's essentially been neutered by being brought into the government and invited to share in the power in a inside the parliament, for God's sake, if you could believe that. Gubaldin Hekmachar, the guy who's skinning your kid alive, you know? Um, and so, um, you know, who knows, man? I Certainly, I think we all got to be able to understand. There's nothing that the U.S. Army or Green Berets and Marines over there fighting can do to make any of this better for anyone. They cannot build an Afghan army. Whatever Afghan army rises from the results of all this is going to be a whole new thing that's not even probably based on a core of what we built for them. Maybe, maybe to a degree, but you know, and I have all the stats in my book. It's been a couple of years, but the cost of their army as it stands now is more than their actual, just domestic GDP or equal to it or something very close to that. I forget exactly the numbers, but essentially the entire government and its entire military are propped up by foreign money. There's no way in the world, even if you take all the heroin money in Afghanistan, they can't afford the government we built from them. They never could. Even if it was, I think, I'm trying to remember exactly the way the numbers broke down, but I think it was, even if you took away the rest of the government and it was just the Afghan National Army was the only thing in the budget, they couldn't afford it. You know what's interesting? One of the first things that we spoke about on this podcast, like back in the day when we first started, was uh, was green on blue attacks and... I think one of the first stories that we we tackled was the the killing of General Razak. Like, would you uh -huh. mind would you mind sharing like you know some of some of the consequences of some of, of when you know green on blue attack is when someone on the inside kills. I guess the, the, the turns on the person who's training them, right? 
Yeah. And I'll tell you what, man, I was mad as hell just last night looking at a headline about this in um, it was either the AP or the Daily Beast or something. And the headline read soldiers killed by man dressed in Afghan army uniform. Oh, he was an imposter, was he? He bought that at the costume shop and somehow like sidled on in there and pretended to be. No, no. He was a member of the Afghan National Army. They were out on a mission together. And what had happened was it was the Americans embedded with special operations, uh, you know, Afghan top tier special operations guys. And they went out to this fire base out there somewhere where they had regular Afghan National Army that they were there with. And the thing I read had, I'm, I'm almost certain it was, as they were turning to leave, this one guy pulled out a rifle and started firing. He wasn't dressed in an Afghan army uniform. He was an Afghan army member. And he was right there and had some American Green Berets within range and took the opportunity. And in fact, the Taliban, who liked taking credit for things like that, they denied it. And credibly, not all of these attacks are a Taliban infiltrator who's sent there on a sleeper cell undercover mission to do this. Sometimes it's just Afghan soldiers saying, you know what, I'm going to go ahead. And there's something that right now our Marines down there in the Helmand province, and I guess this must be the same for whichever other trainers or training missions are going on in the country, I don't know. But I know down there in Helmand where Marines are training ANA forces down there, and I guess police and whoever, that they have soldiers up on guard towers with sniper rifles that they call them the guardian angels. And their job is to sit there looking at all of their own men through a uh, sniper scope, uh, making sure that their trainees don't turn on them. And if they do, to protect their back in case they're not looking. And they almost this got to something a general. Donald Trump when he was, you know, a TV star before he even started running for president, would rage on Twitter about this. You can find, just put in Donald Trump Afghanistan and go set the time and go look back 2013 era or whatever it was, and you'll see him saying, hey, what are we doing? We're the army that we're training is shooting our guys in the back? How can we justify this? That's somebody's son. And he died in action? My brave hero boy, he died in action, huh? What happened? The guy he was training shot him in the back. What? And this has been happening over and over again. And the PR men have had to come up with, let's call it green on blue. That'll confuse them. What's that mean? An insider attack? Eh, and I think they switch back and forth. Which is the more vague and the more confusing for you? Instead of just, you know, why not call him a betrayal assassination? Or something meaningful. And, I mean, really. You know, John Kerry famously came home from Vietnam and asked Congress, how can you ask someone to be the last man to die for a mistake? And, of course, a mistake is the worst word that anyone in power could ever use to describe what they've done that's wrong. But it's an important question. And screw John Kerry, but still, it's a great way to phrase it. We're going to pull out of there at some point. 
And at some point, the last guy, Gutierrez or Rodriguez or somebody else, that's the two guys from last week, um, or somebody else, are going to be the last ones to die over there. And then for what? When we could have left three weeks before. When we could have left three months before, three years before. Makes no sense to keep this going. And for all the people, for all the Hawks who hide behind the soldiers, hey, you can't criticize the war or you're betraying the troops. Well, just how hollow is all that now? And they hide behind the soldiers to do what? To get them killed for what? To support them on a mission to accomplish what? You can't even get a Hawk to articulate it because he doesn't even know. In fact, that was one of my favorite quotes from Fred Kagan at the dawn of Iraq War III against the Islamic State. Fred Kagan at the Institute for the Study of War put out a thing and said, it is impossible to articulate the desired, or it is impossible to, it's impossible for me to articulate, it's impossible to articulate a, um, a specific path to a desired end state. So what we should do is just send 25,000 troops. Go ahead. In other words, we can't tell you what victory should look like. We don't even know what it should look like. But we know we got to get back in this fight right now. And what it'll look like later, that'll just have to be somebody else's problem. I think victory looks like um, the NFL sending, <laughs> having, having a, a, a Monday night football game in Kabul. I think that's the ultimate goal, right? No, I mean, you know <laughs> what it really joking, is, obviously. is... It's a bunch of excuses, none of which are good enough, right? I don't want anybody to call me weak on terrorism. That's one. Hey, we have a base in Asia somewhat adjacent to Russia, China, and directly adjacent to Iran here. And so let's pretend that's meaningful, right? Like the Bagram Air Base gives us any advantage in a war with Russia, <laughs> you know what I mean? What are we going to do? We're going to launch a couple of C-130s at them, <laughs> you know, with machine guns? And what are we talking about? Um, it doesn't give us any strategic advantage whatsoever. And then, of course, there's the magic portal to Boston Logan Airport that they just pretend that if you're in Afghanistan, somehow that equals magic immediate access to the United States of America, which couldn't be, you know, more pathetic hoax that they push on the American people. And... Um, and after all, if you accept that safe haven myth that anywhere that there's an angry Sunni who could get his hands on a rifle, even in Afghanistan, as far as you can get from anywhere without being on your way back again, then that same logic applies to all of Arabia and the western half of Iraq and the eastern half of Syria and all of North Africa. Oh, and East Africa and West Africa <laughs> and... Whatever they want. That's a blank check for them to fight a terror war from now on. Didn't you hear? George Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump came through here and created a bunch of enemies for us. And so now we've got to double down. Safe haven myth in full effect. If we don't have troops occupying Libya, then Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb will reconstitute itself. If we don't have troops in Yemen then as soon as we stop fighting the, our current war for them and we start fighting against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula again, then uh, we can never leave there or else 
they might grow. Now, every time we bomb them, they get bigger. But still, what are we going to do? Not bomb them? In fact, that's a direct quote almost of Leon Panetta. Um, I found this somewhere. I have the footnote somewhere. Um, it was really hard to find, too. I was proud of myself that I found it. Um, Leon Panetta on um, Meet the Press, I think, with Chuck Todd. And Chuck Todd is saying, you know, in Yemen, we've got these drone strikes, the CIA drone war going on there. And I forget if Panetta was at Department of Defense or CIA director at the time, one or the other, in the Obama years. And he goes, but look, every time we bomb Yemen and bomb al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, they get bigger. And Panetta says, oh, and then he says, so, I mean, um, it's counterproductive. We're not sending in the whole army, which could be a problem. But even our, you know, kind of surgical strikes here seem to be counterproductive too, you know. So what do we do? And Panetta says, loosely paraphrase, he says, listen, these are the tools that we have. And so we have to use them. What are we going to do? Not use them. We have to do it. So even though he acknowledges that, yes, every time I kill an Al-Qaeda guy, I create four more or ten more. He says, what am I going to do? Stop. It's unthinkable. <laughs> you know, we have to just keep going. And that's not never even mind when Obama turned around and took Al-Qaeda's side against the Houthis, a war that's been going on for now almost five years. Um which is the very worst. But I'm talking before that, when they were actually focused on the enemy, they were still only making matters worse. Uh, but if you believe in the safe haven myth, then that means that America must occupy the entire planet Earth forever. And you might take note of the fact that on September 11, 2001, there were 400 of these guys in the world, and that now there's about 40,000 of them. Um, but you also could ignore that and just keep on, too, if you want. I mean, there's so, Scott... Oh, go ahead, Danny. Uh, I was just going to say, like, one, one piece that we're not really talking a whole lot about is that there's money to be made uh, with a lot of these interventions, you know. And, and, yeah, there's, like, the folks that say war for oil and all that stuff. I, I'm not necessarily talking about that. But there is a whole military-industrial complex around this. And you, know, you pointed out one thing where, you know, we were basically propping up the Afghanistan army. You know, we were sending them money, but also weapons. Uh, but then we have to also pay the Taliban uh, for like safe passage through the Khyber Pass. And then they use that money to buy the weapons from the people that we're setting up in the armies. So, you know, if you follow them, the paper trail, the money line back, it's all going back to the manufacturers of the weapons and, and, and things like that. So, you know, there's a, almost a vested interest in just like ignoring the the negative parts of of all these interventions and just saying hey profits look at all this money we're making that's right that's right and and just like with any government program even if they really are sincere and they're really trying when they fail they only fail upwards so it's fine you know what do you mean that my intervention in somalia only spread terrorism everywhere well we'll just have to fight them that's what the next war is for, the consequences of the last one. What's the big deal? It just goes with it. As the military calls it, it's a self-licking ice cream cone. Mm -hmm. Every bit of In other words, it's a government program. And once they have a mission, they will change the mission to keep it going. They will do whatever they have to to justify whatever they're doing to keep it going on. And by the way, back to the thing about paying the Taliban taxes that then they use to buy the guns that we give to the Afghan army. Um, an extra fun wrinkle about that is that for a time, the Afghan defense minister, his son, 
ran his own private mercenary force. This was, I think, during the height of the surge. He ran his own private mercenary force, you know, Blackwater security type organization. Mm -hmm. And what he specialized in was he would hire the Taliban to provide security for the Americans. <laughs> so not only were we paying them protection money to allow us to drive through here, but I'm sorry for the liberal use of the term we. Bear with me here. Um, English is a very commie language. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. Our first. guys, uh, <laughs> the Americans, are coming through. Not only are they paying for safe passage, they are actually have Taliban driving at the front and the back of the convoy providing the security for the American supplies on their way to the fire bases to supply the guys for the fight against the Taliban. And the son of the defense minister is the guy running the company that's hiring the Taliban to escort the Americans. And then get this, he gets on a plane, he comes to Washington, D.C., he hires a lobbying firm on K Street to lobby to keep the war going longer. His own little corner of the military industrial complex so that he could keep this racket going. That is the nature of the war we're fighting. And I was kicking myself because it was as soon as my book was out, I realized that there was a guy who wrote an entire book about that. And he had been a soldier in the war, had been an officer and had written an entire book about how America pays the Afghan Taliban all this protection money. Um, but then to cut back to the real military industrial complex here in America. You have to understand, as William S. Lynn says, a trillion dollars a year, a trillion a year. That's the single largest honeypot in the history of the world. There's nothing like it. And so this is why Washington, D.C., there's, forget all the marble statues and temples and everything. The limited republic is over, okay? That's like a, a little bump on the shoulder of the American world empire, that old constitutional structure here. This is a trillion dollars in and out of the arms industry, nuclear weapons, and of course, you know, all the nuclear energy and the VA and all of that every year. And so to the military industrial complex firms, first of all, look at the, um, you have the bankers who service all of these transactions and hold all these accounts and all this stuff. So they're making tons of money on all this stuff, servicing the debt and all the rest of that. Then you have, as Lawrence Wilkerson pointed out recently, you talk about war for oil. How about Exxon's monopoly contract with the DOD to sell them all their fuel that they're making? So never mind stealing it from the Iraqis. How about just forcing the Americans to pay to fill up Abrams tanks all day? Um, there's a ton of money in that. And, and, and literally, the DOD consumes as much fossil fuel as a major Western European nation state. It's comparable to, like, France or Germany, the DOD itself, America's empire, military empire itself, um, is, like, the fifth largest consumer of fossil fuels in the world, uh, something like that. And then, of course, um, the ships, the submarines and the ships, I mean, these are tens of billions of dollars each. Uh, and then you look at the um, at the uh, long range bombers and the sophisticated fighter bomber programs 
um, the F-22 and F-35 program. Don't even get me started you, on that. You're just F-35. talking about, <laughs> and this is why they don't work, is because they're not made to work. They're made to be expensive. That they're engineered by Lockheed to be cash cows. Correct. And that is why they are successful rather than turkeys. It's just you would assume they're interested in making the best fighter they can make for the money because that's what you would do. But that would be wrong. You would be fired. And so that's not how it works. And then all that is just the old military industrial complex from the 20th century. But then you have the entire terror war era and all of these contractors and the quote unquote privatization. But you guys know what I mean. Contracting out mm-hmm. government, contracting out to so-called private firms for, you know, massive amounts of their military and intelligence needs. And so you see the rise of things like Booz Allen, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton and uh, SIAC and all of these major firms that uh, run America's intelligence programs and everything. And the, it's an entire new, you know, intelligence and homeland security industrial complex to go along as well. You talk about a self-licking ice cream cone. I mean, the national security state in America has just completely taken over the society. But that's jobs, or, though. Or at least... That's jobs, you know? It, that, that's what makes it incredibly yeah. hard to, to, you know, argue against at least you know, uh, de facto, not necessarily de jure, you know, it, I I love Bernie Sanders. I, I I quite like him, but like he votes, he voted for the F-35 program in Vermont and he goes, well, if they're going to build the plane, I'm going to do it in Vermont, you know, like, and you know, it's this self-licking ice cream cone that you're talking about, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's apparent and it, and it, it is what makes people blindsided to it. So like if we pull out of all these wars and we pull out of intervention, we're also pulling out of that $1 trillion a year honeypot that you talk about, right? So, you know, whether they're, whether they're tacitly ignoring that um, or, you know, it's, in, in, it's like the reason why uh, is kind of irrelevant, but because that, that's going to upend a giant industry and there's a lot yep. of interests there. <laughs> you know what? When Ron Paul was running in 2012, there was a clip of a DOD conference. It was Obama years, and I think it was the Secretary of Defense was about to get up there and give some comments, and C-SPAN just had the camera and the mic open in the room, as they do sometimes. And one of the guys in the room, it's all a bunch of reporters and industry people and stuff in the room, and just a voice rings out in the room. It was like that George Carlin joke where everybody's talking really loud, so you're talking really loud, and then all of a sudden the music turns off, and then everybody else just gets really quiet at the same time, and your voice is heard ringing out <laughs> above all the others. And and the voice says, boy, if Ron Paul becomes president, we're all going to have to get real jobs. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And then it was like you could hear a pin <laughs> drop because instead of laughing, they were like, oh, shut up. You know, they didn't think it was funny. They were like, hey, man, this is our racket and you're pissing me off. Right. That was their reaction. And uh, it was like dead silence in the room when he said that. And you, and it, you couldn't tell who said it, right? It was like the back of all their heads from the back of the room. You know what I mean? It just kind of, uh, the voice rang out. And people had made a little viral clip out of that for a time. I don't know if people could still find that. But that goes to show. And, and what do you say? Real jobs. See, they got jobs, right? As H.L. Mencken said. Yeah, they're all a bunch of job holders. That doesn't mean that they work. Right. right? That doesn't mean that they produce anything. Right doesn't mean that they're good for anything and that's that's their problem is they don't want to have to get a real job which hey you know what neither do i but (laughs) thankfully they commit so much evil that all i have to do is sit around and criticize them for a living and i've made myself indispensable somehow so (laughs) it's um it's it is really ridiculous and it's also the adjacent industries as well where where these aerospace you know just for as far as like the parts for the f-35 like the way it's sprinkled across the entire country there's a little bit of part there's some parts made in this state and then that state and that state and then it is like danny pointed out earlier it's politically inconvenient for anyone to vote against it yep and and it's all very deliberate and and they don't hide it whatsoever and You know, my favorite part of this is the nuclear weapons, because even after you learn about public choice economics and, you know, uh, the libertarian analysis of the economics of bureaucracy and these kinds of things, you might not actually get around to applying that kind of theory to the nuclear weapons industry until maybe I bring it up to you. But let me tell you, it's no different than any of the rest of this. The nuclear weapons companies like Honeywell and Lockheed, Mm -hmm. it's in their interest to sell as many H-bombs as they can, to develop the biggest H-bomb industry that they can. You know what? Let's tear down Sandia and Lawrence Livermore and just start them all over again, man, from the ground up. Let's tear down every nuclear factory and rebuild them. Let's take every nuclear warhead that we have and reconstruct it. And let's cash checks. And you know what? If there's a limit on how many H-bombs America should have, well, that's up to the public servants to decide America's policy. We're not saying that. We're just saying we have H-bombs for sale, pal. And But that's not true, right? They are lobbying. They're going to Congress, and they even have a caucus in Congress. It's like the nuclear caucus. Yeah, we're from the western states where we have nuclear weapons industries, and we're here in the Senate to represent their interests. Well, wait a minute. And you talk about the cart before the horse right. and the interest backwards and upside down. I mean, if these guys are making H-bombs, that's supposed to be just like a last resort only because the public policy people decided we really, really need at least a few or something, right? But instead, the whole thing is a self-licking ice cream cone. And the nuclear weapons industry must continue to make nuclear weapons. And they'll do anything they can to lobby and influence Congress to add, you know, they passed the START II treaty back in Obama years. And the Republicans in the Senate and Democrats, too, the, these nuclear states, lobbyists, uh, senators, added all these writers to it. And this new project to completely revamp 
the nuclear weapons industry that they started saying it was one trillion. Now it's already two. And, you know, it'll be four by the time they're done or God knows what. But Obama signed off on all that because that was the cost of getting the start to treaty through was basically adding so many amendments to it that provide so much money to rebuild and, and build more nuclear weapons that they essentially cancel out any good that you were going to get out of the treaty anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's it. I mean, it's just, it's no different than if they were representing a company that makes combat boots and wants to get a combat boot contract with the U S army. Cause man, that'd be the gravy train, huh? Mm-hmm. And it's no different when they're selling fusion bombs for destroying cities with, and it's you see it's the diffusion of responsibility too that you know hey the policy is decided by them at some point they're going to cut me off no matter how hard i lobby them they're not going to just keep buying nuclear bombs all day every day there are limits and so therefore i'm not evil for trying to sell as many as i can because it's up to the customer to decide how many he needs right i'm just doing my part and so but meanwhile, hey, if nobody showed up to do that job, it wouldn't get done, and that might be better. You know, what if we only had as much nukes as the Air Force and the uh, and the Navy really thought we needed, and no more than that? That would probably be too many, right? We definitely don't need more than they're asking for, do we? And yet, you have the exact same economics in play with the H-bomb salesman as you do with any other defense contractor. And on and selling any other batch of tanks or ships or subs or bombers or whatever it is. And that is terrifying. You know, that is where the um, I don't know what the solution to it is, but it's certainly where the commies have a point that certainly at least as long as you have a state, these, you know, the companies will seize power over it. It's like the ruling what the the ruling committee of the ruling class or something like that, as they say, the state is, and that you have all of these businesses who have such a vested interest in um, well, socializing their costs and privatizing all their profits, and treating the American people as a captive market and using the Pentagon to do it, and in the name of keeping us safe so you can't object. And, it, and I'm sorry to cut yeah. you off, Scott. I, I was just gonna. That's s- it. I'm oh. I'm I'm just rambling now. Go ahead. I was just gonna say it's like the goal is to not to make the best military equipment either. It's to, it's to make the most expensive military equipment, yep. not the best. If a pilot, if a if an American pilot in an F thirty five went up against a Russian Sukhoi, that pilot would die. Well, in fairness, they're not built to go up against a Russian Sukhoi, but I, I totally agree with the with the sentiments there. You know. Um, the F-35s are intended to be like a first sea, first strike, um, you know, assault vehicle, if you will. You know, they're 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 intended. Yeah, to Yeah, but hit that's you from what far. they say after they had to admit that it can't fight, and that if somebody's sick to jet on it, that they would just have to have a wingman to protect Absolutely. them. Absolutely, that's not how they probably sold it in the first place. Probably go invisible. A better a better comparison would be an F twenty two against a Sequoia. And now we have actually got a race there, you know, because both both planes are going to do really really well, and depending on the circumstances, you know. One might win, the other might win. But uh, to your point, though, Henry, the the F thirty five was like a 
like a bastardization of a bunch of different ideas. It was just like, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the Pentagon Wars movie that we, that we reviewed and that we talked about, you know, with the Bradley, the Bradley fighting, fighting vehicle, vehicle, you know, it's like a bunch yeah, of military right, right. dudes from different departments. We're all, and, and, and frankly, different countries too. Right. Cause we're also talking about like the UK and France are also in, involved in this shit too. So they're like, and Israel, we, yeah. And Israel too. It was like, Oh, I want a jet that can fly really fast and the other one's like i want a jet that we can take off a ship and i want one that you can't see on radar and i want one that can do this and so they try to cobble the the marines want a jump jet harrier system you know so they try to cobble together all of these things into one thing and they promise like 80 percent part compatibility for all the parts uh and then they set up an industry whereby they they you know, manufacture in 43 of the United States states and nine different countries uh, in such a way that's like not logistically smart. It's just it makes it politically inconvenient, as Henry said, to to deny wanting those contracts. And and those are jobs in, in 43 states and nine different countries. And everybody's getting what they wanted because everybody sat at the table and we're promising this part compatibility, even though I think they they only have about a 25% part compatibility the last time I read about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, this wasn't necessarily like a jet that they decided to develop, you know, um, for like a tactical purpose. They try to make a, a Swiss Army knife plane. Um, and I think it's awesome. It You know, like objectively, it is a really good plane. But like, oh, situ- no, objectively, it really is a good plane. But... For the situations that you might throw it into, it it is it is lacking in many things. You know, like it's trying you know to what, be too many. The first day they used it, they they blew up a hut in Afghanistan that they claimed yeah, was a drug lab, and then they yeah. couldn't even celebrate it because the same day one of them fell out of the sky yep. <laughs> off of America's east coast. I mean, and then another one fell out of the sky in Japan a couple of weeks later. To be fair. That's, the F-35 is not the first plane to fall out of the sky, you know? Um, like, Yeah, it just does it a lot. I mean, nah, I, and blows I, I think, up on the tarmac. Yeah. I, and if you eject, the helmet will break your neck. If you And the gun doesn't work, and the camera doesn't work, and it's not fast, and it's not stealth, and it can't turn, and it can't climb, and it's a total joke. Well, the, According to every GAO report and every every critical take that's ever been leveled at it, it's it's a stretch to even find a take where they can see that, well, actually, it is sort of good at something. You can't even find that. So I don't know what you're reading. But the thing I read last week was the gun doesn't work. Still. I actually didn't read that, but, I mean, obviously that, that would be like a, a fatal flaw, right? You can't have a plane where the gun doesn't work. That's just ridiculous they're trying to throw out the a10 and use this thing for close air support yeah i mean but that's god help your son in the infantry out there that's the thing about this it's trying to be a swiss army knife right if you if you put the 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 f-35 against an a10 for close air support or like close air support on the ground a10 is going to win all the time because that thing was built to do that if you if you take the the f-35 and you put it against the f-22 for like dog fighting the f-22 is going to blow it out of the water because that's what it was built for they were trying like i understand where they were trying to go with this. okay is it better than any jet for anything no no it's not but it is the best jet for a lot of things if you want to do many things at the same time right and, and maybe operationally speaking that could be useful right it's it's possible that there could be an operational use case where you need one jet to do multiple roles that's why we have multi-role fighters it's it's certainly better than the the multi-role fighters that we have now 
in many ways. Yeah. I mean, they've had the electronics in the nose cone of an F-15 to kill you from way over the horizon for a very, very long time now. So Certainly, but I don't see you know, where those anybody's F- got those an improvement didn't from have the same stealth, at all. And those F-15s didn't have the same range. Well, but it's not stealth you know? at all. I, it is. I mean, it, the, it the is. F-35 is not stealth. It's simply not. I mean, you can find the thing with a World War II-era long-wave radar. It's right there in the sky. No problem. I mean, the cross the the cross section on the radar is much smaller than an F fifteen by a lot, by a lot, and that's that's the truth. It might not be invisible like how people you know make it out to be, but it's the cross the cross section on that radar is much much smaller than an F fifteen, and it can uh, it has better components. Like yes, you can probably take an F fifteen Strike Eagle and like retrofit it with all this new tech that they developed for the F thirty five. And then bring that up to speed, um, but like the design itself, and the component, and the way that it designed the aircraft itself is smaller on a radar cross section. So, like if we wanted a multi-role fighter that can do a bunch of different things, F thirty-five is actually pretty good, but it's not very good at any one thing. And I think a lot of the comparisons that people make, uh, you know, for the F thirty-five, they like they they point out this one thing that it's not doing better than some other plane that it was that was built to do that one thing and uh, again i'm i'm equally shitting on the f-35 i think it's for what it is awesome plane it is it's way too expensive for not good enough in my opinion it's just way too expensive for not good enough it's cost us what how a uh, trillion dollars at this point what's the estimate yeah a trillion it was a trillion dollar program mm-hmm. so far the the full life cycle is going to be a trillion so. so in that in that movie the pentagon wars uh, scott you ever see the movie the pentagon wars with with kelsey Grammer? yeah with robin hood men in tights yeah yeah um there's a part at the end of it when he's telling i think he's telling congress how much like what's the budget or, or what what's the cost so far and he's like 16 billion dollars and he's muttering it because he's embarrassed because it was a, it was a 16 billion dollar program this is a trillion dollar program and the plane still has has problems on a daily basis i understand right. like that's the unacceptable vis- right. right i understand kind of like the vision of the pl- I, I was talking to this guy in the navy and he was telling me like well he, he was kind of making the same arguments that you were making he was like hey you know the f-35 is not meant to be a dogfighter it's meant to have a you know it's, it's a it's a plane built for dorks who are going to be controlling drones at the same time? That are going to be doing all these, you know, multi-purpose purpose fighting. It's about the computing systems, not about the actual aircraft. But I was just like, dude, the plane costs a trillion fucking dollars. Like, how do you justify that? Like, how does a nation justify those types of expenditures? And that's where I get hung up on it too, honestly, Frank. Uh, like, I, don't, like, I don't care if a plane does that. Well, and look, honest. we already had F-15s and F-18s and A-10s and all these things. So it's not better than any one of them at anything. And we already had some. Yeah. The, you know, in the Air Force, it's a crisis. Essentially, for the army, it's a crisis that the Air Force wants so bad to throw out the A-10s in favor of these things. When that means that their infantry got to die, because the Air Force doesn't want to bother fighting as servants of the army, because that's all they care about. Well, I mean, I think and that's so that's... they want a jet that's no good for this, so that the army will have to take care of their own damn force protection. 
And this that could be a I part mean, of it. I, I definitely think that to have these guys making any of these decisions at all is just it's like Monty Python running the American Empire. I mean, that that's definitely a part of it. But I, I definitely think that, the, again, the military industrial complex comes back into play for this. Right. Remember how you were talking about how, you know, we've got all of these nukes and, you know, the nuclear weapons industry wants to basically, you know, build, tear down the factory and build a new one and, you know, take all the old bombs and reconstruct them. Right. So this this is part of that. That's it. Part of that is I, I think the biggest part, in my opinion, is is to to make more money. You know, I, I respect our military. You know, it's 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 hard to sometimes with, with the crazy decisions that they make. But like, I respect them. And I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, they are they're not trying to get, have people die. Right. And they are trying to protect the troops and they are trying to protect themselves and defend this country. However, I definitely think that the military industrial complexes incentives are such that they will pressure whether through you know uh, overt pressure or soft pressure uh, uh, the military into adopting newer better technology because you know the 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 military is always wanting to get the best equipment to be a cut above you know their adversaries and so they're attracted to it right there it's it's like crack for them it's like oh we got something better give me that new shit you know um, it's, 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 in my opinion, the biggest flaw here is that, that, that incentive program, because they're not going at it from like a, from an egalitarian perspective or a pragmatic way, right? They're not saying, Hey, this thing is objectively better and costs the same or costs just a little bit more, but it's totally worth it because of all of these additional things that we're going to get. The, the ideas that they right. purport to them is just like, Hey, Here's this thing that we promise is going to be a million times better. It's also going to cost a trillion times more, um, but it'll be better. And then no one's like actually examining that. I feel like that they're just taking, the, you know, the 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 companies like Lockheed and and others, uh, Boeing, Raytheon, things like that, um, at their word that this is that this is worth it. And I don't know. I <laughs> I'd love to sit in you know these defense com- uh, 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 committees where where they where they hear these pitches. I would love to, to be a senator and hear this shit um, because I would tear it apart. I would I would tear them apart. Well, yeah, and of course, you know, a lot of times, um, not to let the officers off the hook, but a lot of times Congress insists that they accept more weapons than they Correct. want. They go, look, Correct. we got more tanks than we know what to do with yep. here. And they're like, yeah, well, we insist you take another load. In fact, the, one of, the most egregious example of this I could think of is, um, and, and you can find the video of this somewhere, let me think. I think it's in Sir No Sir, where they show um, an officer talking about in the secret war against, I forget if it was Laos or Cambodia, I think it was against Laos, and they're just bombing them and bombing them and bombing them and bombing them in the secret war over there. And later on, the guy testifies before Congress, and the congressman asks him, or the senator asks him, so, you know, at some point you say you stop receiving orders to, to continue out these strikes, yeah, but you continue to carry out the strikes anyway? Uh-huh, yeah. And for how long? For months, whatever extended period of time. Well, why did you keep doing the bombing raids? Well, because they kept sending us bombs. It's ridiculous. And they were getting piled up on the tarmac. You know, we had no place to store them or keep them or anything. And so, you know, we would just go out there and bomb the Laotians with them to keep the stockpile low. And it's just like, you know what I mean, as they say, sort of out of the mouths of babes or whatever, where 
it's just some kind of sort of half-assed ignorant guy. He couldn't think of a creative way to say it. You know what I mean? He didn't have a PR man to help him spin it. He just is like, well, I mean, essentially we had an excess inventory of explosives. Yeah, get rid of it. <laughs> and we had to do something with them, so we kept doing the thing we had been doing before. Which is, of course, killing people. Right. Tearing their lives apart. Mm-hmm. And not giving a damn, not even thinking about it that way at all. Uh, this is just business, essentially, the business of government. Yeah, I definitely hear that. And it comes down to the, the senators in each of their states that are looking to get that next contract from whatever military you know, uh, 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 partner that, that's building the things to send to the military, You know, that's building those bombs to send to Laos. You know, they, they think, hey, shit, I, I don't want to get rid of jobs. If we stop sending them bombs, then, you know, that's 500 people who don't have a job in my state. And I, I, I'm up for re-election next year. So if you, if you go to listen, if you read the business press, I mean, they're not ashamed about this. They'll say, hey, you know, Lockheed stocks are up on a huge, right. uh, you know, contract that went through today. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be great news for shareholders and the thing and the whatever. They don't give a damn, you know, in fact. There's, you know, UPI, which is at least used to be owned by the Moonies. I don't know if it still is, um, but United Press International, which is sort of Washington Times mm-hmm. consortium, um, they actually have a feed. For me, on, on my bookmarks, it's called UPI 2. I don't know. There's a regular UPI, but then the second one is just all Pentagon contract announcements. I got to get on you know, that. BAE nabs $41.8 million for work on the USS Anchorage. Air Force swaps F-35A crews mm-hmm. and flexibility exercise. General Atomics wins contract for four Reaper drones for the Netherlands. DARPA taps BAE for autonomous air mission. And just, I just pull that up right there, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. That's what everything is, is who's banking on all these just technology transfers. Yeah, the Netherlands needs a bunch of Reaper drones. Did you hear <laughs> Maybe. if you go to any website if you go to any economic development website in america if you go to like any county economic economic development website target go to target industries each one will their their primary focus is attracting aerospace technology companies to that specific location almost every it, just go to go to the, the different economic development uh economic development agency websites and it's all just hey we're a great location to build your planes or to build, build plane parts. Hey, look, I mean, if you work for, again, combat boots or, or shoelaces or TV dinners or, uh, you know, a toothpaste company, you're a rep for Colgate. You're going to not go after the contract? Right. General, your men need toothpaste. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a big account for you. What if you could sell them some hand sanitizer or something? You're talking about... A bonus, man. You're talking about this is. And so at that point, just like a soldier in the field, your focus is narrowed. Right. Mm-hmm. And the the greater national interest of the American people to perpetuate this thing, whether that's a good idea or not, becomes completely irrelevant. You are on one mission and one mission only. And that is to prop up your business at the expense of the American taxpayer, because if you don't, somebody else will. Mm-hmm. And. So it's the, you know, uh, Nick Terse, who has done such a great job about uh, the African command lately. Um, he wrote a book called The Complex because he says you can't call it the military industrial complex anymore because there's too many parts because you have to include academia and all scientific research right. and all the high tech firms mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. 
and all the media people. It's just the complex. On and on and on. The Israel lobby. Don't forget them. <laughs> you know. Didn't uh, lock? Didn't the the, the seed money for uh, PNAC come from Lockheed Martin? Did it? Uh, you know what? No. I'm not exactly sure of that, but probably. Um, you know, certainly Bruce Jackson was a founding member of it, and that certainly sounds right. Um, but he was definitely the financier of the committee uh, for NATO expansion, and then uh, after that, in the run up to Iraq War II. At Stephen Hadley's request, uh, he actually created uh, the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq, and which focused on propagandizing about Hussein's human rights abuses rather than the weapons threat. Uh, was their part of that marketing campaign in 2002. And yeah, and look, and the, the whole Committee for NATO expansion, it was just as clear as anything that Every Eastern European state that we bring into NATO has got to arm up with Lockheed products. And so that's it. And whether they can buy them themselves or whether we get the American taxpayer to buy them for them makes no difference to Lockheed. And if one day this leads to a thermonuclear war with Russia, hey, who saw that coming, man? Well, I guess Lockheed can build the bunkers, right? Yeah, there you go. Or they'll be all dead too, so it won't matter to them either. A whole, a whole new industry. Hey, so Danny and I, in our last episode, we were talking about, um, we were talking about Syria. We were talking about Syria and Turkey actively killing each other at this point. And, you know, I, I think our audience is pretty informed about what's going on there because we've been talking about it to death, and, and they're maybe even bored of it. At, they're bored of it at this time. However, we're we're still trying to put our our, our finger on this. What is why doesn't Turkey just say uncle right now with Syria? It seems like they're in a in they're 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 they have a losing hand. Man, I'm totally with you on that. I asked my guest Dan Lazar on my show that exact question today. That listen, at the height of this whole thing, I really thought it would have been a huge move, but I thought there was at least a reasonable chance that Erdogan thought that he would just use these bin Ladenites as cannon fodder to, you know, limit Assad's um, authority in eastern Syria and then even push the caliphate into western Iraq, at least as far as Mosul. And then ISIS ended up going even further than that, of course, in 2014. But I thought at some point he very well might send in the Turkish army and say, actually, I'm the caliph, not you, Baghdadi. And this is my sultanate, and this is now greater Turkey. And after all, Iraqi Shiistan doesn't want Mosul anyway, right? You can have them. So who's to fight about it? And I kind of thought he might do that. Well, he never did. And he's done nothing but lose since then, right? Since 2014, and America came and, and decided that, oops, <laughs> we kind of screwed up and built up too big of an Islamic state now, and we wish we hadn't, so let's bomb it back into oblivion again. Um, and then it's been all rollback since then. So now what's he got left? He's got um, the Idlib province. And then in 2018, you'll remember in the spring of 2018, he invaded Afrin, and, uh, which was west of the Euphrates River, and forced all the Kurds out of there and basically cleansed that area of Kurds and forced them to go east. 
and he used his Bin Ladenite forces to accomplish that. But then, okay, so now what? To your point, why hold on to a tiny Bin Ladenistan in the Idlib province when his victory against the Kurds is already set? His buffer zone has already been created. His cleansing campaign is essentially complete to provide for security as far as he said he wanted or needed. And I mean, the Kurds aren't even anywhere near that. What does he need these that? guys for anymore? <laughs> right? Huh? I was just saying the Kurds aren't even anywhere near Idlib. <laughs> They're on the opposite side of the country. So I, I struggle yeah, with well, that. Well, I too. mean, the, so Syrian Kurdistan. If you if you if you look at the map close, I mean, they did have in Afrin is you know in the western is west of the Euphrates, and they I'm almost positive, but that was two years ago right. that they pushed them east from mm-hmm. there. So they did have a presence there, but no exactly. longer. They're no longer yeah. there. <laughs> so, um, so why if you're Erdogan, why keep? The Al-Qaeda guys in play against Assad at this point? I have no idea. And when that means picking a fight with the Russians who are backing Assad and trying to finish this, and, you know, I'm sure you guys saw the headline over at antiwar.com was about how it was uh, 50 Syrian troops were killed by the Turks, not by the Bin Ladenites, but by the Turkish military. And then the Russians came, and I guess launched one good strike against the Turks and um, I'm not exactly sure what damage they did but you know apparently that was where the ceasefire landed as of yesterday but you're talking about the Russians trading blows with a NATO ally and why so our NATO ally can continue to back Al-Qaeda in Syria the guys that Donald Trump officially abandoned And not just officially. I mean, I was told by people who know things that, no, he really did. This isn't just a cover story. They called off support for these terrorists back in June of 2017, six months in power, when Pompeo was still at CIA. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. And so, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I endorse whatever it is that Syria is doing as the means to their end of retaking that province. But I am saying that the uh, violent resistance against them is led by guys who are sworn loyal to Al-Qaeda, which means their lives are forfeit. You don't... If you live near an Al-Qaeda guy, you have the right to live to 85, man. But if you actually take your blood oath, hey, I'm, I'm not saying I want the U.S. government to go do things. I'm just saying I don't mind what happens to you after that. And... So sorry about that. And, and, and listen, there are a ton of innocent civilians who are completely caught in the middle here. 
But that's all the reason that all these powers should be, these states should be working together to solve this thing. I mean, how about sending in the Turkish army instead of the Syrian army? Let the Turkish army arrest all the true bin Ladenites and restore order and then let the Syrian army come in after that, after the state of rebellion has ended, an e- you know, the easy way by the by imposing force from their friends, the Turks, instead of the scary enemy, the SAA. Right. Something like that. I just made that up. Right. Why can't somebody come up with a solution here? It, why should it have to be like this um, where you have, you know, 100,000 people or more? Um, and I guess someone was saying, I forget who mentioned it in freezing temperatures out there. Oh, it was Matthew Ho mentioned, I think, um, freezing temperatures out there. These refugees suffering in this. Um, but um yeah, I just can't understand. I'm sorry. I'm just this is all the long way of repeating the exact question that you asked me. Why is Erdogan doing this after it's already over? I don't know. It's so strange. I, I have no idea what he hopes to gain. And look at what he's doing in Libya. He sends troops yeah. to Libya. You talk about a fool's errand. You know, go and fight the free for the Syrian army side in the middle of that civil war. I mean, what does he have to gain from that? Even in terms of domestic politics, that makes him look like a tough guy or a dumbass. You know, the f- I don't the know. The free Syrian army is freeing Libya. It's it's like when that started happening. When when um when those reports started coming out, I think it was started like late December of last year. When when um guys from Idlib were being like transferred over, like slowly transferred over to to Libya to fight. General Haftar, I was like, "What on earth is going on right here? Like, what is what is this guy's end game? Like, I I have zero clue what he's trying to do." And when it comes to Assad, I always would think that they would want to be natural partners because they, from what I know or from what I've read, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but they had a pretty good relationship prior to 2010, prior to the war breaking out. I thought out. so. Like they, you know cooperate. what? I really don't know what they re- had to fight about. Honestly, I never understood that part of it myself either. And you know, Turkey always had this problem, this uh, doctrine of no problems with the neighbors ever. You know, they got their problems in Syria. Let them have them. We got our own. And so I do see how it's all counterproductive to their interests. I mean, were the Turks? What was the state of Turkey's concern? about the Syrian Kurds in 2010. I mean, I, they had their troubles in the past, but the you know status quo ante here was not a problem. They had the Syrian army in there, which poor Kurds, don't get me wrong, but the Syrian army was in there, and I don't think that the YPG was causing a problem inside Turkey. The whole alleged threat of the YPG as you know providing safe haven for the PKK and for operations against the Turks and that kind of thing that all came about as a result of the crisis that Turkey America Israel and Saudi and Qatar and whoever had helped to create in the first place rather than being the reason for it in any way so beats me not much oil to steal like YPG is way more preoccupied yeah. with ISIS than thinking about linking up with PKK to go against Turkey like they had an imminent threat where they live, <laughs> you know, and they were damn yep. good at killing them too. Damn good at killing ISIS. So like, I don't know. I, I, I didn't buy that either. And they have a ceasefire inside Turkey with the PKK right, right now, which is in the parliament right. and their leader is under arrest, but is, has been tamed essentially, uh, you know, uh, Akalan mm-hmm. under arrest and told his people to 
put down their arms and join the political process where they're currently a non-threatening minority in the parliament. So the PKK is largely yeah, abandoned. Erdogan, I mean, the answer might just be that he's a bastard. Yeah. I don't know if there's more to it I than just, that. I just think you know? he's trying to be a tough guy, and like he keeps getting shut down, so he has to try and one-up everybody else. That's 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 what it comes down to. I think it's just his personality type. He has to make it look good. Like Once when he lied about, because um, it was definitely a lie, that they didn't airstrike against uh, uh, the Syrian army, and I'm like, uh, Russia the same day came out and was like, nope. You did not do this. We have a no-fly zone. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think he, he he's just, he can't admit defeat because it makes him look weak. And so he just has to up the ante. That's what he wants. You're talking about the strike from yesterday? No, no, this was uh, no, uh, two one, weeks ago. Weeks ago. Uh, there was a... Oh, two yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, okay. so um, the, the Syrian army had... You know, uh, killed a couple folks uh, on the Turkish side, the Turkish army in Syria, uh, doing their operations to to take the M4 and the M5, uh, and then they retaliated. They being Turkey retaliated against the the uh, Syrian army. Um, how they did is unknown still, uh, but the way that Erdogan said that they did, they said they launched a successful airstrike, and pretty much immediately, uh, Russian like. Uh, um, like defense minister or somebody like that came out and said, no, no, you didn't do that. They did not. There was no airstrike from Turkey because we control that airspace and we would have shot them, shot their asses down basically. Um, yeah. And it's funny because I totally believe the Russians on this one. Um, I, I don't believe everything the Russians say, but on that one, like there's no way that they would allow like an incursion on a, on a no fly zone. Which is a nice reminder that Hillary Clinton lit- literally if I could say that, Hillary Clinton literally ran on a no-fly zone over Syria to protect the Islamic yep. State. Uh, well, not the Islamic State, to protect the al-Nusra the, guys the moderates, the moderate from, uh, from Syria and mm-hmm. Russia. The moderate organ eaters. So, uh, yeah, we might be, we might have all already died in a nuclear war with the Russians. Their machetes were mo- moderate. <laughs> they had moderate machetes. A moderate <laughs> nuclear war. Yeah, um, yeah. She's um, she's a crazy old woman. So, what's really interesting though now is that all these other golf partners or golf partners, all these uh, all these golf states are saying, "Hey, let's uh, let's uh, accept Assad back into the into the community." And it's kind of like, "Hey, hey, Assad, um, you know, this wasn't personal; it was only business." You know this this whole this whole cat- catastrophic war that happened us us funding these moderate rebels um, in yeah. Syria. This was just wasn't personal. It was well, just I'm glad business. you said that. You know, it's a really important point that there's a reason that Assad is in power. I mean, does anybody doubt that America could have removed him? Obama launched this massive air campaign against Gaddafi and got rid of him using special operations and proxy militia terrorist types on right. the ground. He could have done the same thing. He could have carpet-bombed Damascus off the face of the earth. The reason he didn't, you know, he gave the yeah, the CIA and the allies give a few billion dollars a year to these rebels. Well, why not a few tens of billions? And why not make sure that they win? And the answer is because from the very beginning, he knew that, man, these guys are terrorists. From 2012, they admitted publicly that, look— Jabhat al-Nusra is just a new name for al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria. 
the bad guys from the last war that ain't even quite over yet. Our troops were still in Iraq until the end of 2011. This all overlapped. They're taking Al-Qaeda's side on the Syrian side of the line while they still have troops in Iraq. And in fact, they kept the CIA there and they kept up the drone war against Al-Qaeda in Iraq, what was left of them, all the way up through uh, at least 2013. So, because because me and Jason Ditz used to joke on the show that they were chasing them across the border, where they go from terrorist to hero. But they knew this whole smokescreen about moderate rebels. When Thomas Friedman put it to Barack Obama, Barack Obama says, "There's no moderate rebels. The whole thing is a fantasy." Well, you're going to get a bunch of construction workers and doctors and farmers and lawyers, and they're all just going to pick up pitchforks and go, and they're going to take on the Syrian state and their Hezbollah and Iranian and Russian allies on one side, and Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and the other terrorists on the other side? Come on, Tom Friedman, don't give me that crap, says Barack Obama. Yeah, well, so he continued, and he knew that all along. Said so all along, refused to commit completely to the policy all along for that very true and very good reason. And yet that's the same reason why he shouldn't have done anything at all. That's the same reason why he should have told the Saudis and the Turks and the Qataris and the Israelis that I don't give a damn how much you hate Iran. I hate Al-Qaeda more. I'm the president of America and my job is keeping bin Ladenites down. And I'm not going to have any Sunni insurgencies anywhere or you're going to have a problem with me then. Do you understand? Do I make myself clear? So speaketh the regional hegemon. And instead, what did he do? Okay, let's do it. Pour in enough money to just kill 500,000 people and create the Islamic State that we got to turn around and destroy again and do all of this and achieve nothing and leave the guy on the chair because we're afraid what would really happen were he to be overthrown. It's just absolutely sick, man. It's just, if you guys had done this, I would be so pissed at you. You know, what the hell are you thinking? Ain't right, god dang it. Well, at least uh, the rebels in Libya were moderate, right? (laughs) Uh, You know what? It turns out, actually, that this guy, um, Hakeem Belhaj, was it Hakeem? Was it Belhaj? Abdul Hakim Belhaj was had been kidnapped and tortured by the British and the Americans. I guess the British kidnapped him and turned him over to the American CIA who had tortured him in Thailand. Maybe Bloody Gina did it. I'm not exactly sure. And then he came back and was part of the Libyan Islamic fighting group. I'm not certain if he fought in Iraq or just in Afghanistan, but he fought against the Americans and was part of the Libyan Islamic fighting group there in Derna and was one of the leaders of the revolution over there. And then once he took power in Tripoli, he sued Britain. And everybody knows the American courts will just turn you away. We got absolute immunity to break any law we want. Piss off. That's the American way. But in Britain, there's something like they don't even have a constitution. There's something like a rule of law there where the courts heard this guy's case. He's suing the MI6 for cooperating in his quite illegal kidnapping and torture. And I don't think he ever won any money, but he certainly made a big deal out of it and like took up a, a position in the Libyan parliament. Um, now, I don't think that makes him necessarily a moderate. I think he's just a warlord in a parliament for whatever that's worth. Um, but um, 
you know, they have not had a widespread, you know, uh, a takeover of a bin Ladenite state there with, you know, hardcore Islamist law ruling over Tripoli or anything like that. What they do have is 500 warring militias, you know, maybe 100 major ones. And, um, you know, if you can call it a civil war, essentially chaos, people scrambling for power, um, you know, in a in a very armed country with no organization, a lot of competing factions and and a lot of continued intervention over there. So, um, it, you know, it could have been worse. I mean, apparently there is a lot of secular sentiment in uh, Libya that the Islamists just couldn't overcome. I mean, they do exist there and, and have some power, but I don't think they've, you know, it certainly hasn't been the nightmare that Syria was. But that's not to praise the situation at all. I mean, certainly tens of thousands of people have been killed. Uh, you know, it's been a catastrophe. But grading it on a curve against Syria, well, forget about it. But that's not the measure. The measure is the status quo before America started that war, which was essentially a police state, uh, but not a totalitarian one. You know, I'm sure, well, if you were the victim of it, it sure probably felt like a totalitarian one. But, you know, they draw the line between, you know, a right wing colonel boss versus real, you know, Nazism or communism where they control every aspect of your life kind of thing. It wasn't like that. I mean, you know, Gaddafi was too afraid to have that much of a government to rule over people because if they were that powerful, they could overthrow him, you know. So, um not to praise him, but just to say the status quo was stability. And um, if if there were to be improvements, those improvements in the form of government there should have come from the bottom up best they could. And, you know, this is really part of the Libyan story, too, by the way, that hardly anybody knows about this or talks about this. But um, they could have had peace all along. And the Gaddafi regime was trying to negotiate the son, safe Gaddafi. Um, was trying to negotiate on the regime's behalf, and he talked to Dennis Kucinich, and he was talking to the CIA and the DOD, and this is the part of the story that is really infuriating, that you have the DOD, even the brand-new AFRICOM, that really wanted some stuff to do, you would think. They were cautious about this and reluctant to do this, and were trying to figure out a way to avoid war with the CIA. And instead, it was the State Department, led by the head diplomat, Hillary Clinton, who was determined to make this war happen and ended up quashing all of their efforts to negotiate. And, you know, I don't know everything about Safe Gaddafi, and I don't think you have to believe he was a great guy in any way. He was the son of a dictator. Lord knows what advantage he took in his life of, of people subject to his power. I have no idea. I'm not saying he was great in any way. But it is well reported that, you know, perhaps unlike his brother, who wasn't as interested, that he really had a lot of very serious reform in mind and was very soon to push Muammar Gaddafi, the wacky colonel father, aside and assume power over the government and an attempt to really build a parliamentary system and a civil society to support it and institutions of democracy and try to make a westernized nation state out of the place for real. And they do have oil after all. They have plenty of resources to apply if they do it well. And 
this could have been, there's a reasonable chance, okay, that this could have been a real transition to a much better form of government for the people of Libya without any of this chaos at all. And this was in the offing before the intervention ever happened. And then once they're threatening war, they're saying, listen, first of all, it's Al-Qaeda that's leading this uprising. For God's sake, how can you do this? These guys just got home from Iraq War II, man. You can't take their side, can you? Really? And then secondly, what do we have to do to work this out? And they really tried. And, you know, there's a great four-part series in the Washington Times about this. And um, there's a couple of actually really good studies in the New York Times, kind of a two-part thing in the New York Times about Hillary Clinton. Uh, Search Hillary Clinton, Libya, and Bank Shot. That was them talking about, yeah, what we'll do, we'll take all the terrorists and guns from Libya and send them on to Syria for the next one. Um, But it really talks about kind of the process of how they got into that war. And essentially, just like any libertarian could have told you, it was all public choice stuff. And the reason the war happened was because Hillary wanted it to happen. It wasn't because of anything about Libya that needed war. It was that Hillary needed a war. And also, Samantha Power needed a war. She had been demoted because she had signed on with Obama early. But then during the campaign, she had called Hillary Clinton a monster. And so that meant when Hillary got the secretary of state job, oops, she got stranded over deputy something or other over on the National Security Council. And Michael Hastings in the Rolling Stone had a great quote of her talking about she's complaining about being uh, stuck over there doing do-gooder rinky-dink stuff. Like, get this, in the 2011 era, do-gooder rinky-dink stuff like trying to forge reconciliation between factions in Iraq. Yeah, who cares about stupid crap like that? That's so last year. On to the next one, right? And so she was then the one who, in order to finally break out of her detention and get her pat on the head and attention from the boss and a promotion, she started a war. And the first thing she did was went and got Susan Rice on board, and then the two of them went together to Hillary Clinton and convinced Hillary Clinton What, that we got to save the Libyans? No, that this will be good for Hillary Clinton. She will be able to take credit for starting this war and will be seen as a strong and muscular commander-in-chief for the upcoming presidential election of 2016. And so then the three of them together took it to Barack Obama and convinced him to do it. And I believe he did it essentially as a favor to Hillary was, you know, he said himself, according to Robert Gates, imagine this. The secretary of defense says, don't do it, Mr. President. And the secretary of state is like, get him, get him. And he goes with her. Are you kidding me? And anyway, Gates later said that Obama said, yeah, in Libya, I have to say the decision, it was 51 to 49 to start that thing. Which is just another way of saying that he is a guilty war criminal. That he launched a war that he absolutely did not have to launch. It was a war of choice against a country that never threatened us. And based on a completely fake excuse that the Americans believe Gaddafi was going to murder every last man, woman, and child in Benghazi when his guys got there. Which is completely stupid. I mean, at least Bill Clinton pretended that Milosevic had already killed 100,000 innocent Albanian Uh, Muslims in Kosovo, which was a complete hoax. But we went to war in Tripoli over that's about to happen. Believe me, 
Oh, my God. In Libya, I mean to say, over it's about to happen. Believe me, you've got to be kidding. And 51 to 49 was his measure of doing it. And that was how it happened. It was these guys were playing politics. And, in fact, you can read in the emails, and these aren't uh, leaked by anybody but the State Department themselves, under Freedom of Information Act. Um, I know you'd be surprised. They don't make her look good. They make her look terrible. And there's her staff. I don't know if she responded to this, but there's um, um, her lick spittle, uh, Jamie Rubin, writes her this uh, giant thing about, oh, yes, sir, boss, you own this war, Madam Hillary Clinton. This is your war. Congratulations. Hip, hip, hooray for you. And you're going to be so strong in 2016 running on this as your big signature issue of what a big, great commander-in-chief you are who makes tough decisions like we got to start a war with Libya and all this great stuff. What a wonderful narrative about your muscular leadership Blah, 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 blah. And there you go. And that was how however many tens of thousands of people got killed. She had a chance to stop that, too. When those French planes went, went on, because the, 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 it was a French plane that bombed Gaddafi's, whatever, palace, government building, home, whatever you want to call it. And um, when they were up, when they were like on flight there, didn't she have the call to, to, to stop them from doing it? Well, I don't think she's in the chain of command on that. I mean, once once the decision's made to go, I think that was that. Um, and I think it was the Americans that launched all the original sorties in the massive bombing campaign to start it and then supplied the Europeans after that. But you're still right. I mean, that. I mean, look, it took nine months to get Gaddafi. And they could have negotiated that whole time. They could have ended the war at any point. They didn't have to see it all the way through. And by the way, they totally lied their way. You know, this is the the liberal world order, right? This is benevolent global hegemony. This is America selflessly supporting the rule of law for the planet Earth at our own expense because we care so much. And yet in places like uh, Kosovo, they don't have a U.N. resolution or in Iraq War Two, They don't have a U.N. resolution that says that they can start a war. Screw it. We'll just go anyway. We got NATO, we got a coalition of the willing, and we just do whatever we want. In Libya, what'd they do? They promised the Chinese, I think the Chinese just abstained. I think the Russians even voted for it. And she convinced, uh, Hillary convinced the Medvedev government of Russia that, listen, this is about protecting the civilian population of Benghazi from the coming onslaught of the uh, of Gaddafi's forces. Okay, and so... Uh, that's it. It's not authorizing a war. It's just authoring, authorizing a no-fly, no-drive zone to keep Gaddafi's forces at bay. That's it. But then, of course, the writing was on the wall. I said so at the time, before it all happened, as it was all happening, that anybody can see the chain of dominoes of logic here, that once you accept the premise that to protect the people of Libya, you have to bomb their government. Well, you've already won the argument. You've argued past the sale that the security force of Libya is the greatest threat to Libya, so say us, and that the people of Libya will never be safe until it is destroyed. It's as simple as that. It's not, 
you know, they always call their thinking calculus. It's not. It's just plain old arithmetic. Once you got away with this lie, once you got your nose under the tent, it's already on and it's on. And so what they did was they pushed through a resolution through the United Nations that the Russians voted for that they could have vetoed that said, okay, we're just going to protect the people of Benghazi. And then once they got started, of course, it was just within a couple of days. I don't think they ever did announce it, but it was clear that actually we lied. The policy is regime change in Tripoli, and we're going to keep up this air war until somebody lynches this guy, which is then importantly exactly what happened. He was uh, hiding in a drain pipe under a street, and the militia guys grabbed him and got him and immediately started you know, punching and kicking him and beating him up. One guy pulled out a bayonet, I guess pulled it off his rifle, and sodomized him with it. And then they uh, dragged him up onto the hood of a truck and I think paraded him around and beat him up a little bit more, stabbed him a few times, and then somebody pulled out a forty-five and shot him in the side of the head. And then they threw his body in a ditch. Well, I guess they scraped him up after that. And then, in fact, they paraded him around. They, like, kept him in a freezer and let people come and gawk at the corpse and all this stuff. That's how America does business, <laughs> you know, helping to protect the human rights of the people of North Africa, you know. That's the exact way every dictator fears that they're going to die. That's why Kim Jong-un yep. doesn't want to play ball most of the time because he's afraid that we're going to do that to him, rightfully so. Is that what would have happened to Assad yeah. if, Damascus, if, uh, if ISIS took Damascus? Oh, probably worse. I mean, yeah, presumably he would have been able to get on a plane and get the hell out of there in time. But, yeah, I mean, um, I don't know why Gaddafi didn't. It seems like he would have been able to find somewhere to go. But he was, he t always was talking smack about everybody, man. So I could see why. Maybe he didn't have anywhere to try to flee into exile. It was too late by the time he tried or whatever it was. Maybe they would. he knew they would have just shot him down if he'd tried to fly out of there. But, um... Yeah, and look, all other things being equal, Gaddafi certainly deserved to be hanged. Um, you know, he was an autocrat. What can you say? There's not a defense of him. But that doesn't give the American people or its security force or our, you know, so supposed security force the authority to participate in anything like that. That's an entirely separate argument. And so uh, whatever his fate was... Even as far as hanging him from a rope, it should have come at the end of the rule of law and not a mob on the side of the road, you know? Or who's the barbarians here? It's totally nuts, man. Um, Scott, we've kept you here for almost two hours, man. I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, we, we got right to talking as soon as you joined, so I guess I'm going to plug all your stuff in like an intro, you know, prior to, you know, the, the actual interview. However, just remind everyone, your book, where to find all your stuff, Scott Horton Show, all that you need to plug. Sure. Okay, so um, first of all, I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com at antiwar.com, and I write articles there, and you can find my show at the top of the page there. And then I'm the editorial – no, I'm the regular director, just the director, at the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. Check it out. we got a brand-new website. looks pretty good libertarianinstitute.org and you can find my show there and stuff too and then um, I'm on in Los Angeles on Sunday mornings KPFK uh, 90.7 FM in LA for anti-war radio and uh, I wrote the book Fool's Errand Time to End the War in Afghanistan uh, came out in 2017 
Um, some people like it. And there's an audiobook version of it, if you can stand listening to me. If you like what you hear here, there's nine hours of it there <laughs> on the subject of the Afghan war. And um, I think that's it. <laughs> I always forget something, but that's enough. Scott, man, thank you so thank you so much for 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 coming on, man, and giving us so much time. And uh, Danny, Danny, and I will both be there at the debate. Yep, we'll we'll be seeing you. We we have our ticket, man. Great. When those tickets went up, yeah, we bought them immediately. We immediately, <laughs> we immediately bought them. I was at I was actually talking. You to, know that it's sold out twice now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was. They had to change the day and everything. I, I was texting with uh with uh Dave the camp, and I was like, "Is this really happening? Like, is this really?" This 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 sounds like just too wild to be true, and he's like, "Just make sure you get your tickets right away because it's already sold out." And I was like, "All right, I'm done. I got them, got them. I think I got two of them." Boy, I hope I don't screw up. Yeah, I I highly doubt that. But I guess if you're in the New York area, um, you should uh, you should start going to Soho Forum. We haven't been there in a while, yeah. but um, I, we need to start going there again because it was a really good time. We saw Danny Sherson uh, debate. I forget the guy he was dating, but um, it was uh, it was really fun. Yeah, um, you know I've only seen a couple of those, but I guess that's a little bit of homework I have to do is get go back and watch quite a few of these and see how they go and see what I can learn about it. Yeah, man, they're really fun. But Scott, thanks again for joining the show. Um, Great talking uh, with you guys or at you. At pe- Sorry about <laughs> that. But you know how I am. That's why we had you on. <laughs> uh, peace, guys. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.